Well, we are in the beginning stages of this exciting series going through the book of Acts leading up to Easter Sunday, which is going to be very cool. You'll hear more about that. But uh, we are going through the book that is the history of the first church. And so what we're seeing is the first first that happened in the first church and then, and then being just real excited about that and then asking God, can we experience that right here and right now, 2,000 years later? Now, as we approach Acts chapter 2, the last paragraph of Acts chapter 2 today, it is one of the most famous paragraphs in all the Bible. It is virtually an obsession of every single pastor I have ever known because it really describes the culture of the first church. And the culture of the first church was this incredible community, well-connected, excited to be around each other, excited to, quote, go to church, excited to advance the cause of Christ. They did so many wonderful things. So every pastor I have ever known is virtually obsessed with Acts chapter 2, wondering how can we replicate this here and now. So I'm going to read this through. And as I read it, I want to ask you to Um, to go through this with sort of an emotional, you know, meter here. Every phrase I read of this last paragraph of Acts chapter 2, I want you to ask yourself and be aware of your emotions. Which phrases that I'm going to read really excite you? They're like, yeah, I want that, right? Which phrases kind of freak you out a little bit? It's like, oh, I don't know about that. So just kind of be aware of your emotional journey as we read this this paragraph here in Acts chapter 2 that describes the culture of the first church. Ready? They, this first church, just weeks after the resurrection of Christ, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, communion, which we'll share today, and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts chapter 2. That's the paragraph that is the obsession of every pastor I have ever known. And honestly, I've looked at that my entire ministry career, even from the time I was in high school, just thinking about the idea that maybe I would be a youth pastor. That's about all I ever dreamed about back then. But maybe our youth ministry could be something like this, just this incredibly fun and warm and embracing gathering where you just enjoy each other's company, you're enjoying the grace of God, and you're doing some good together. And I've got to be honest, when I was a youth pastor and had total free reign over this youth group, I mean, I could do whatever I wanted to. This was great. It was way back in the day. And uh, I was basically given the entire church campus and given a, a good budget from our board and basically was left alone as, as a 17-year-old youth pastor. <laughs> Not a good idea institutionally. But we had fun. We just gathered people, gathered kids together and just said, what do you want to do? What would just be this incredible community for, for, for youth? Because at the time, there was nothing here. There wasn't a stoplight in this valley. There was nothing. You had to go to the grocery store and hem it. I mean, nothing. And so the kids after school were just doing absolutely nothing but getting in trouble. So we, we started this, this ministry and we called it Battle Zone. It was just a ton of fun gathering kids together. And I would say that's the closest I've ever gotten to just this super, you know, genuine community of of friends having a good time, enjoying God's grace. There have been moments that Rancho Adult Church, big church as we call it, uh, has experienced that, just moments and seasons. And, but I think for us right here and right now, we have the opportunity to say we're, we're about to head out of, we hope and pray, this incredible global pandemic that has done incredible damage, particularly to the churches. We haven't been able to meet officially for a year. 
we have an opportunity to restart some things. We have the opportunity to look at Acts chapter 2 and say, okay, now everything was taken away from us for a year, so we don't have to reload anything, right? We are free from every tradition of the past. We can look almost with clear eyes and say, Acts chapter 2, that's the gold standard of a church culture. How do we do this? And that can be pretty fun. That can be pretty fun. Here's a few things that were clear in the culture of the first church. They were more than a gathering. They were true friends. They enjoyed true friendship. True friendship. The first church wasn't just gathering to listen to songs and listen to a sermon, although, you know, these songs are incredible. The sermon's even better. Let's just be honest. <laughs> but it was more than that. The gathering is great. They gathered. They gathered for teaching. They gathered for music. That is great. But it was more than that. They were a culture of friendship. Friendship. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That is just, these are just words that flow off the tongue. For anybody who imagines what a church could be like, they were together and had everything in common. Friendship. Beyond acquaintances, beyond how you doing fine, how you doing fine, how you doing fine. True friendship. Deep, profound friendships. Now, this naturally came as a result of their friendship with Jesus. Jesus was so intentional. This is not a master-slave relationship. Even though Jesus had all the full power of God himself. He was the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. And it would be very easy for his followers, which they did often, to just bow, bow, bow. Jesus says, stop it. We are friends. We're friends of God. Jesus said to his disciples, don't call me master, for a master does not confide in slaves. Jesus says, I've confided in you, right? You are now my friends since I told you everything the Father has told me. There's a, there's a DTR thing, define the relationship, which is very important in, in uh, you know, business world. Is DTR, define the relationship. Jesus defined the relationship. And it's the relationship that's still defined with us as well. We are friends of Christ. We are friends of God. It's not he's the master and we bow down in subservience. That's not the relationship Jesus wants. Jesus lifts us up. We are friends. And more than friends, we're partners. I've given you everything the Father has given me. Now, let's advance the cause of Christ together. It's incredible. It's a culture of friendship. So what is friendship? We use the word friends a lot. But the kind of friendship that was practiced in the early church, the first church, Acts chapter 2, was a deep friendship. So I, I cobbled together a very long definition of friendship, but I think this requires the length in order to describe the depth of their relationship. Friendship is a loyal affection, mutual esteem, Kindness, honesty, vulnerability, and trust between two people that endures through good times and bad. That's friendship. That's real friendship. Beyond acquaintances, real friendship. Now, the tough question for the morning is, do you have friends like that? That's a hard question. Because we might say we've got friends and we might mean acquaintances. We might say we have friends, but it's just about the activities we do together. And it doesn't get to that deeper spot, as we've said in the definition of vulnerability and honesty and trust in good times and in bad. Do we have that kind of friendship? Now, for some of us, we might be able to say, yes, I do. And it's, it's a great joy and a great pleasure. Do I have that kind of friend? Yes, I do. And, and in your mind, the Rolodex of your friends are, are, are cruising in your head. And you might say, you know, my family is like that. My spouse is actually my best friend. And, and that's not just a cliche. You can actually say that with confidence. I'm happy to say that with confidence. My wife is my best friend. That's a good thing, right? So for those of us who have this kind of friendship, we're blessed. 
But some of you might say, you know what, I'm just gonna be honest with you, I don't think I do. There's a lot of people around me, I've got a family, might even be a good family, but do we get to the point of vulnerability, honesty, and trust? I might have a lot of people around me at work and neighborhoods and I'm at the sporting events with my kids and there's people everywhere, but I'm not sure I have that deep, profound friendship. I just want you to know that's okay. It's okay if you don't have this kind of profound friendship. I know what that's like. In fact, many years ago, I was uh, getting my annual review from the board of the, of the church and school. And as they were reviewing me, they asked me a great question. Showed they really cared. They said, hey, Scott, are you surrounded by a community of support? And I had to really think about that. And I gave them an honest answer. I said, my home life's good. My wife truly is my best friend. But outside of that, I don't necessarily have this broad base of friendship. I just had to be honest, I didn't. And I'm not necessarily wired as the guy that has to get out of the house and go into the neighbor's house and go into buddy's houses. I'm just not that guy. I would feel probably pretty comfortable just being around my house and my family and doing my thing. And I love hanging around the church and I love hanging around our staff. It's great, but I'm really content right there. So when they asked me, do you have a community of support? I had to say no, and then I had to do some work over years to get some additional deeper friends around me. And I love how Proverbs 12, 26 puts it. The wise choose their friends carefully. You know what that means? True friendship is an intentional decision. We're choosing friendship. Acquaintances just happen. I'm around people on the soccer sidelines. I'm around people at work. I'm around my neighbors. That's acquaintances you just kind of fall into. But true Acts chapter two friendship, that deep camaraderie is something that is a decision. We choose friends. And I, along with the board's help, made the decision I needed to get some friends. <laughs> Sounds pathetic, but it's true. I needed to get some friends. So I got really deeply involved in our network of churches. Rancho is a part of a network of about a thousand churches, but we were sort of at an arm's length. We're not in a big city. And, and so we kind of kept to ourselves. I just dove in. I'll do that, I'll do that. I'll volunteer here, I'll lead this. I just got really involved. And I made a ton of friendships. We got more intentional about hanging out with people, my wife and I, because we would both, I think, kind of slip into just us and the family and the home. We made intentional decisions. Let's invite people over. Let's say yes to more invitations. Let's get out there. Let's build some couple friends. And we have. It's been great. I got more involved with sports, just hanging out with guys, right? Guys hanging out with guys. Now, I will tell you uh, when I'm hanging out with guys on the golf course or pickleball or whatever I'm doing, it's not, do we have a vulnerable, intimate friendship? No, that's going to be weird. But what ends up happening is over time, you actually do get to know these people. Guys even can have vulnerable, intimate relationships, right? With other guys. We don't put it like that. It's kind of weird. Probably creeped out every guy who just heard that. <laughs> but over time, it really does happen where I'm telling you, if I ran into a problem, I mean a problem, a tragedy, some gnarly thing hits my life. And I can tell you with confidence, if I fail, not planning on it, <laughs> if I fail some way, I am gonna have people so, who support me. They're gonna be there. It was an intentional years long journey. But can a whole church, an entire congregation, be a genuine, deep and profound community of friends? Is that even possible? We read that in Acts chapter two, that's the first church. Can it actually happen where an entire church is a culture of friendship? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. I, I know that in a healthy church, there are pockets of genuine friendships, but can an entire congregation, like the first church in Acts chapter two, be a culture of friendship? 
I don't know the answer, but I really want to take this opportunity of a pandemic that shut every church down, canceled every program to say, listen, we're not going to automatically reload anything. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at the early church. We're going to look at the core mission of Jesus for his family of faith. And we're going to rebuild very intentionally toward a culture of friendship. So I think for us, that means that we need to be more than programs. We need to be a true fellowship. Now, I'm reluctant to use words like fellowship because they're rarely used outside of the church. It's a religious word. Maybe if you're a, a doctor, part of a fellowship, or a school, part of a fellowship, um, those are all kind of bougie things. But in terms of like just on the street, we don't use the word fellowship. It's a very religious word. But it's a word used twice here in Acts chapter 2, and it's a very intentional word. Acts 2, 42, they devoted voted themselves to fellowship. That's a deeper word than the word friendship, which can mean an awful lot of different things. Fellowship is the word in Greek, koinonia, the original language of the New Testament, koinonia. And it means a shared life. Simple definition, a shared life. In other words, there are other people who are living my life with me. They are living my highs, they are living my lows. They are living my successes, they are living my failures. They are living my joys, they are living my sorrows with me. That's koinonia, that's fellowship. But what churches often do, and I'm telling you, Rancho has been, you know, the poster child of programs because this church really kind of got its legs in the 80s and 90s. In the 80s and 90s, if you are as old as, as me and maybe you grew up in church in the 80s and 90s, it was an era of programming. And you'd go to conferences and the conferences will tell you how to program better, how to program a worship service, how to program youth and children's, how to program adult small groups, how to program uh, mature adult programs. I mean, and franchises, I mean, hundreds of franchises of church programs were developed. And, and we were awesome at it. And I'd still say to this day, you want to put together a program, we'll put together a program that's going to be sick, right? Especially in the megachurch world, you know, megachurch is defined as a church over 2,000. The megachurch world has the resources. You've got the campus, you've got the people, you've got some bucks to put together. You can do awesome programming that kind of rivals anything that's out there, right? And so that was the goal is let's program and program and program. And if we program stuff, people are going to come. And they did in the 80s and 90s. But then it just kind of got old and tired. All the church programs, just loaded church programs. I think there was this sense that, hey, all the programs are great and they're well done and maybe even entertaining and we were probably inspired. But are we building koinonia? Am I really surrounded by friends here? And I think what happened after the uh, 90s into the 2000s as the mega church movement kind of slowed down a little bit and, uh, and now it's not so mega, <laughs> right? I think there was this collective sort of examination that says, that's a lot of cool stuff happened, but you know, still, I'm a little bit on my own. Because here at this church, with all the fancy programs, I can't be honest about my struggles. I can't be honest about my doubts. I cannot be honest about my fears. I can't be honest about my failures. I can't be honest about the things that are tearing me up inside because this thing is too slick. Everything looks too, too right. Everybody looks too put together. Pastor never talks about his problems, never is vulnerable. You know, this, this group I'm in, it's all these smiley, happy Christians doing smiley, happy Christian things, but I am suffering inside. And I can't let anybody know. So more than programs, 
let's build koinonia life to life. How do you do that? You can't just do it. You can't just decide to do it. It's a whole cultural thing. It's a deep thing. How do we be with each other here? Acts chapter two, they met in homes for the Lord's supper and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. I love that. Uh, What you see in uh, Acts chapter two is a lot of eating going on. (laughs) Food everywhere. And one of the things that's kind of cool about the uh, early uh, 20th century church, so we're talking about pre-megachurch, pre-programs, right? There was food everywhere. There's an ancient word in America uh, called potluck. Have you heard that word? Some of you who are a little bit older, you, you remember potluck. It's like, oh, wow. What's For those of you who are 40 years old and younger, you don't know what potluck is. It's when you bring dishes to a room and then everybody eats off of the table. Some of you are saying, that's disgusting. I get that. But I'm telling you, the 20th century church was built on potlucks. You get together with food, right? And, and it's, that's the, the joy of relationship. Oftentimes, it's around food. In fact, we're going we're gonna to celebrate the Lord's Supper together here, and it's going to be COVID-friendly with a little wafer and, and you know, some juice that's on your table in your buckets. But the entire Christian culture is centered around a meal with Jesus, the Last Supper. And so koinonia really is about people getting together and eating good food, good drink, good conversation, good fun, good laughter, right? That's friendship, a culture of friendship, seeking koinonia, life to life. The other thing we see in Acts chapter 2 is we see generosity. But it's more than charity. It's more than charity. It's true equity. What they experienced in Acts chapter 2 was more than charity. It was equity. Verse 45 says, they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. As I read that paragraph earlier, you might have bristled in your emotional, you know, um, radar there. It's like, ooh, selling property and giving it away. I don't know about that. The other stuff I can take, but that kind of generosity is a lot. And it was a lot. Now, for those of you who are nervous, I'm not going to ask you to sell any property. (laughs) Not at all. But I am going to ask us to consider what they lived out, which was a quest for equity. Give me a few minutes here to define. Charity is great, but charity is not as good as equity. Here's charity. I have a bunch of uh, Pringles here, little snack pack Pringles, right? This is nature's perfect food right here. Snack pack of Pringles. I don't even think it contains potatoes. It might. But um, here's some Pringles snack packs, right? Everybody loves them, some Pringles. Now, here's what charity is. Charity says, I have a lot of Pringles. You don't have any Pringles. So I'm going to pop open a snack pack of Pringles, and I'm going to give you a Pringle. That's charity. That's good, right? I have food. You don't have food. I'm going to give you food. That's good. We collectively have housing. You don't have housing. We're going to pool some resources and charitably walk with you in a housing program to get you to self-sufficiency. We do this every day, all day. Community Mission of Hope. We feed people, thousands of people every month. We house people. We do charity work. Charity work is really, really good. But charity work is still condescending. And I don't say condescending in a, an intentional way, like I am choosing to look down on you. But what charity does is just recognizes in structural ways that there are those who have and there are those who have not. There are those in power and there are those who are not. There are those with voice and there are those with, without. And so it's a good thing for those with power and privilege and a voice to give charitably to those that don't. That is a good thing, but it's not enough. 
It's still us and them. It's still have and have not. It's still powerful and, and those without power. So there's a better way to do life than just charity. It's called equality. It's a good thing. Equality is a good thing. Equality is better than charity because what equality does is says, you know what? It's not just me giving charitably to you. It's about recognizing that there are systems all around us that will always make us better than you, societally speaking. And you know all the lists. There's educational systems, and there's criminal justice systems, and there's healthcare systems. There's all the systems, right? Inner city systems versus suburban systems. There's just all kinds of systems in there. And so those who have can always give charitably, but there's a better way to do it that says, let's put in the hard and complex work of making the systems more equal. This is a, a quest for equality, right? Let's make the systems more equal. It's very hard to find those systems and change those systems to make the systems more equal, which means everybody has equal access or equal opportunity. And I would say in the United States of America, we've done a pretty good job on the road towards equal opportunity. So here's how this relates to Pringles. Um, here's Pringles out there. And we're gonna say, we're gonna lay out the Pringles and we're gonna say, hey, listen, we're gonna create systems so that everyone has the opportunity to eat Pringles. And in, in the United States of America, we can celebrate that we have done so much in our country to get to a more equal place of equal opportunity. So anybody out there that really wants something, anybody out there that will really work for something can come to the table and grab them a Pringle. They can get an education. They can get a job. They got to work, especially those on the margins, got to really work, but we've created equal opportunity. We've changed our, our systems. We've changed our laws in order to create equal opportunity. That's good. So there's charity, there's equality. All of that's good. But here's the reality. The stark reality is even though America has come a long way with equal opportunity and we have a long way to go, just creating equal opportunity does not mean equal access. Creating equal opportunity doesn't mean people will actually access the opportunity and grab the Pringle. And so the U.S. and other countries have created equal opportunity, but then the outcomes don't change. We create an equal, equal opportunity for education, but people who are marginalized are not getting the same education as people who have held the Pringles for so long. That's where equity comes in. Equity is concerned with outcomes, not just opportunity. So here's where it gets fun. Equity says this, you know what? One-tenth of the population is truly marginalized and they are not taking advantage of the opportunities because there's so much between the opportunity and them. There's so much, they, they can't get here. They don't have the transportation. They don't have kind of a familiar, her, familiar heritage that, that values this. Um, they, they, they don't have the uh, sort of the generational wealth that would allow them to access these opportunities. There's so much between, between the Pringles and the marginalized. So what equity says is, if there's 10% of the population that is marginalized, we're gonna give them 30% of the resourcing because we wanna change the outcome. That's equity. And so basically the people that have always held the Pringles are willingly saying, you know what, I'm gonna give up what I've had access to to make sure you have access. That's Acts chapter two. Now in Acts chapter two, that meant selling their own possessions to give to people in need. That's the culture of Jesus. But you know what, I guarantee you, 100% guarantee you, as I talk about equity right now, a huge percentage of the church says, no way, it sounds like socialism. It's not socialism at all. 
Nobody forced me to do anything. Nobody forced me to put, to put you know, 20%, 30% of the resources towards 10% of the population. Nobody forced me. Now, if government tries to force socialization, we're going to have a conversation. I'm going to stop it. <laughs> Why? Because socialism takes all the Pringles, gives it to a dictator or a small political party, and they give one little crumb to everybody, but they keep everything. That's what socialism does politically. A little political science there. So we're not talking about socialism. We're talking about culture. We're talking about the heart. We're talking about the heart of Christians who know what Jesus did for us. He gave it all. He's the Lord. He has all the privilege. He has all the Pringles. And he gave it all away to the point of torture, death. He gave it all away. All the privilege of heaven gives it away to us. And yet here a lot of his church is saying, oh, don't take too much of mine. Don't take mine. Protect my rights. What? Read Philippians chapter 2. Jesus had all the privilege of heaven, and he willingly gives it up. The Lord is about equity, outcomes, not just equal opportunity, not just charity, outcomes. And so for the church to gather together and to say, you know what, it is our determination that we will see the lives of the marginalized, the lives of the oppressed, the lives of the voiceless, we will see different outcomes. We will not just hand out little bits of charity. That will be good. That's a good start. We will not just strive to create equal, you know, systems. That's a great start. But we're going to walk alongside people and walk alongside communities, and we are going to disproportionately give away so that the outcomes will be different. And I'm talking about in, in individuals. And I'll just tell you, in my own personal life, there are, are a handful of people that take most of my time in terms of charity, in terms of equality, and in terms of equitability. It takes a lot of time. The more marginalized someone is, the more generational the problem, the more time it takes, the more resources. But what if the church said, you know what? That's our privilege and that is our pleasure. We're gonna take most of our resources and put it to the few marginalized because their outcomes have to change. That's the culture of the church, or it should be. Micah 6, 8, the Lord has told you what is good. <laughs> it's sort of, I told you. The Lord's told you what's good. This is what he requires to do justice. That's what we're talking about, justice. Not just charity, not just equal opportunity, but a true outcome change for those who are the most marginalized. So the pursuit of equity means disproportionate resourcing goes towards unserved, underserved communities until the outcomes change. Can that be this church? Can it be our privilege to just give and give and give until the outcomes change in the marginalized? God, I hope so. I hope so. So what about the future? Here we are as a church. Over the past year, we have not been able to meet normally. We're still not meeting normally. We're meeting, but not quite normal. We have the opportunity to reset. We have the opportunity for a hard reset. We have the opportunity to imagine a different kind of church. We don't have to reload anything here at Rancho. We can have a hard restart. Every once in a while, my wife runs into some technical problems with the computer or the printer, and my technical expertise is always the same. Shut it down and restart it. <laughs> nine times out of 9.1, it works flawlessly after that, right? 
We need a restart. The Western church needs a restart because it's not working. It didn't work before the pandemic and it's not gonna work if we reload it after the pandemic. We need to look at Acts chapter two. Clear the slate, look at Acts chapter two. Don't just keep reloading programs. Let's talk about people. Let's talk about a culture of friendship. Let's talk about gathering together, not just for our benefit to protect our rights and protect our freedom, but give rights and give freedom to others. That's our privilege. That's our pleasure. We can do this. We can do this differently. So I have a couple of ideas as we wrap it up here. And I would encourage you, I would love your input on this. You can email me. It's right on the website, rancher.tv. Contacts, emails go right to me. I don't have a secretary. Let me know what you think. Number one, keep it simple. Keep it simple. That's what Acts chapter two did. They gathered, they hung out, they ate, they did some cool stuff for other people. They just kept it simple. I guarantee, we are not gonna reload 100 programs around here as we get back together. We're not gonna reload normal church, not gonna happen. We'll have great stuff for kids and youth and it'll be great. But what we're really gonna do is we're gonna gather, we're gonna party together, we're gonna celebrate together. Sunday mornings are going to be a celebration. You're gonna gonna walk on this campus and you're gonna be very glad you're here. We are gonna eat, there's gonna be food out there, right? And we're gonna hang out. There's gonna, this whole center area is gonna be a park for kids. We're calling it Central Park. Central Campus, Central Park, get it? So you'll see construction out there starting here pretty soon. We're gonna gather and we're gonna connect. If people were outside for an hour and a half, just making friends out there and never darkening the door of a worship service, I think I'm gonna be just fine, I think. Right? We're gonna gather, we're gonna celebrate God, we're gonna celebrate his grace, we're gonna worship, we're gonna talk about God's word, we are going to connect, but the life of the church is not gonna be here sitting. The life of the church is gonna be out there connecting. And then not just connecting out there in the courtyard, but connecting in homes and just eating good food, good drink, good laughter, good conversation, right? If you're not leaving here with a little bit of stomach ache because you, know, you laughed and you had a good time with people, then that ain't church. Acts chapter two, gathering and connecting. And then finally, this won't surprise anybody, equipping each other to advance the cause of Christ through what? Mercy, justice, and love. That's what Jesus did, that's what we're gonna do. That's what Jesus did, so that's what the first church did. That's what Jesus did, and that's what we are going to do as a church. We are going to advance the cause of Christ through mercy, justice, and love. So yes, we are gonna be merciful and charitable. And yes, we are gonna pursue justice by creating uh, equal opportunity, but we're gonna pursue equity as well, and we're gonna go where people are really hurting and struggling, and we're gonna walk with them very patiently and very slowly, putting a lot of resources of Rancho in that direction, which we already do. I mean, if you knew the amount of resources we already put to this, it'd make your head spin. But we're not gonna be ramping up programs that cost money and not gonna be ramping up a bunch of staff because we have the work of mercy, justice, and love to do, which means we need to be active. We need to be active in our generosity. We need to be active in our time. As you are led by God to get involved in the work of mercy and justice and love, and I'm telling you, there's nothing better, and this is the exclamation point on today, there's nothing better than a group of friends doing something good together. So you're gonna see this a little more often. Live free and do good. We are a free church. As Evan said earlier, we are free from the constraints of religious law. We are free from navigating commandments. We're free from sin management. We are free to just enjoy God's grace, celebrate God's grace, connect as friends, and do something good in this world. Live free and do good. That is Rancho. And you're gonna see that from now through Easter to our grand reopening, whenever that is, and it's gonna be a fun place to be, doing a lot of good together for the cause of Christ. On your table, 
There are cups. We're going to celebrate communion together. And for those of you who are online, the feed will cut so you could get uh, some bread and some juice and celebrate this as a family as well. But the Christian movement started with a meal. The Christian movement started with a meal. Jesus gathered his disciples together, his, his friends. He said at that last supper meal, he says, you are my friends. Now let's eat together. Let's drink together. So he took the bread of the meal, and you can take the wafer at the top, and you can break it if you'd like. Jesus says, this bread is my body broken for you. As often as you gather and break bread together, would you remember me? Remember my love for you? Remember the price I paid to love the world? Remember the pursuit of mercy and justice and love that I live my life for? and that my body was broken for. Take this and eat this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the wine of the Passover meal. And he said, as often as you drink this, around this last supper meal, would you remember me that my blood was shed for you? It is though the love of God was pouring out onto the earth for all people everywhere to come to God by grace. Not through religion, not through commandments, not through tradition, not by good behavior, but just by knowing the love that God has for us proven by the death of Jesus. He paid it all to show love to all of us to the very end. Take this and drink this in remembrance of him. Our God and Father, we thank you that you showed off your love for us. You sent your only son, Jesus Christ, the fullness of heaven, the full expression of God. He lived among us in poverty. He was rejected. He was scorned. He was shamed. He was arrested, tortured, and, and murdered because the evil of the world didn't want anything to do with the goodness of heaven. And yet he rose again from the dead in victory. And so it is the goodness of heaven through Jesus and through us that continues to be poured out to this world. And so we thank you for the honor of knowing your love for us through Jesus, that sacrificial love, paying it all for our benefit. And so God, to follow Jesus is to receive that love, to receive that forgiveness freely, which we do, but then to share that with the world around us through mercy, through justice, through love, through charity, through equality, but through equity having this, this desperate sense that everyone who is marginalized will be brought forward. Everyone who is powerless will be empowered. Everyone who is voiceless will find their voice and express their voice, that this world will begin to look more and more like the kingdom of heaven because we, your church, are advancing the cause of Christ. We follow him, we trust him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.